Well, if you got your Bibles, Mark chapter 16, and uh, it is the last chapter in this book. We have been uh, working through this uh, since, de- since uh, September, and uh, we've been kind of taking it a chapter at a time as we've looked at this series called Snapshots and these images and these stories of Jesus that just take hold of us and we've been learning from and has been challenging us, and now we come to the end. If Mark chapter 15 was kind of the climax of the story, Mark chapter 16 is the culmination or the resolution of this story. And I don't know about you, I kind of feel like I'm coming to the end of one of my favorite books I've been reading. If you, uh, if you ever watch that or if you have a, like a Netflix series that you watch and like you finish that last episode and you're like, what do I do now? What do I do with my life? Like, what do I, what do I watch? And like, I, I even see people put on Facebook like, I just finished this series. What else do you people watch? Like, I got to find something or you're just dying for the next season to come out or you finish a series of books. I remember when I, I read through the Harry Potter series and like when I finished book seven and I, I was like done with the entire series, I was like, I loved it, but I feel really bad because there's not going to be a book eight. Like, I was just, like, wanting more of that story because we love a good story. A good story gets into our hearts, our souls, and our mind. It it grips us. It makes us think in ways that we haven't thought before. And this book of Mark has done that to me, and I pray that it's done that to you as we've journeyed through this. And I hope that as you come to the end of this, you're longing for more because the good news is this. The story does continue. There are, other, there are other books in the Bible, but even beyond that, the story of Jesus continues in our life today. There will be new chapters written. It's not that we're adding new stuff to the Bible, but every day that you and I journey with Christ, there are new chapters to our faith journey that are being written and experienced. And so it, it may feel like an end, but it's actually just moving on to the next story that we're going into. And so we're going to look at this culmination of the story, this this story that comes to an end in this incredible supernatural moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at this key question of why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Why is it foundational to our faith? And last time we were together, we started to put together this puzzle that helped us to understand and answer these questions of why Jesus' death and now his resurrection are so important events in not just our history, but all of human history. So I want us to begin by reading Mark's account of this resurrection. And Mark does what he always does. He keeps things very simple. And if you have your Bible, sometimes in the printed Bibles, uh, there it'll, there'll be different notes along the way. And if you read a note in certain Bibles, it will say that in many early manuscripts, and most early manuscripts, Mark, the, the Gospel of Mark actually ends at verse 8. He only writes eight verses about the resurrection. And what we know is the other was added later, and it could have been added on to by Mark himself. It could have been added on to maybe by Matthew or Luke as this letter began to circulate around because there are pieces in the remaining part of that chapter that correspond to stories that are found in Matthew and Luke. And so as the stories were going around, there were some continuity with them. But what I want us to do is just read these first eight verses together in the sense of we know Mark wrote those and and how we would read those. And as we've been studying Mark, these eight verses fit very well into how he writes. And so look at it, Mark 16, 1 through 8, the resurrection of Jesus. 
So again, just to catch you up, Jesus had been crucified. They took him down. Joseph of Arimathea took his body and put him, and they buried him, and they put guards at his tomb, and then here's what happened. It said, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, if you were here with us Easter, I want you to remember this was a normal thing. They would go and actually, uh, the tomb, they would, after a few days, they would go and anoint the body with spices to deal with the smell and the odor and the decomposition of a body. And so this was a normal thing that they were doing in the, in the life cycle or the cycle of dealing with someone's death. Verse 3 says this, and they were saying to one another, who is going to roll away a stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What an amazing conclusion to the story. Think about it. All hope had been lost. Their rabbi was gone. The one that they thought the Messiah was the Messiah had been put to death. They were going to the grave to put the finishing touches on the death preparation to begin their grieving process. And instead of finding the body in the tomb, they were greeted with this angelic announcement that Jesus had come back to life, that he had risen from the dead. The guards that were at the tomb had fled in terror. The stone that was sealing the tomb had been rolled away and the body of Jesus was gone and all that was left was a pile of grave clothes and this angel proclaiming that he had risen from the dead. Think about it. Their sorrow, disappointment, even anger and contempt were immediately replaced with hope, excitement, and new possibilities. These women that came to the tomb to mourn Jesus were now the first to celebrate his resurrection. But the story says that their emotional roller coaster didn't end there. Their excitement quickly turned to fear. Said they were literally shook by fear. An overwhelming fear that caused them to begin to tremble with astonishment. Why did this fear overwhelm them and for a time incapacitate them and make them just want to hide? Because I think they very quickly realized something and it's something I want us to realize today if you've never realized this about the resurrection of Jesus. They realized that everything they knew before this moment had changed. Everything. There was no normal anymore. They had just seen a place where a man had come back from the dead. Life is not normal anymore. I don't know if you were around the other night when the Con Ed building had its moment, but I was with David and Erica and, and Esther. We were over in Midtown, and we were sitting at their apartment looking out, and it, I mean, I felt like I was in a scene from Independence Day, right, or one of those other movies, and we were like, either something's happening or we're going to die. Like, well, it was like our world may be changing right here in front of us. It felt like that. That was for these women. They showed up, and they realized everything 
was different. It wasn't just that the man they loved and respected had come back to life, but this full realization of who this man was and what he had just done broke over them like a 30-foot tidal wave, just washed over them. Everything is different now because of this. And it completed the puzzle in their minds of understanding who Jesus is. So before we dig into the full meaning of his resurrection, I want to just quickly go back and remind us of the puzzle that we put together a couple of weeks ago to help us get to this point of understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and why it's so meaningful. And we started with this understanding of the sovereignty of God, that God is not just an authority. He is the authority in our lives. Sovereignty means that God is, again, not just an authority, some authority. He is the one and only authority. God doesn't determine right and wrong. Right and wrong flow from him and his character and nature. He doesn't make the rules. He is the rules. And what God does is always right, always good, always wise, always purposeful, always prompt, and always what is best for us. God is the authority. We are not. We don't even get a say. It's not that, you know, it's this realization that there is a God and I am not him and you are not it. None of us are good. There is one God, one source of ultimate authority. And we have to understand that because then it brings us to the second piece of understanding Jesus' death and resurrection is we have a problem and it's our sinfulness, the sinfulness of each of us in here. God created us in this original, beautiful setting of the garden where, where it was designed for everlasting harmony and love. But the truth is, for there, for there to be true harmony and true love, one thing had to be present And that was our ability to choose. Without choice, there is no love and there is no harmony. Choice becomes an, or love becomes an obligation. Unity becomes a prison if there is no choice. And we talked about how we've been bad stewards of that choice. From the earliest time in the garden to the earliest days of our lives to the earliest moments probably of today, we have made bad choices. We sin. And there is always consequence to sin. And that's what we have to learn. Sin is when I acknowledge, embrace, or act upon any other authority other than the authority of God. If he's the ultimate authority, when I choose to operate against that authority, it's sin. And sin is not just our actions. At the root of every sin is this belief that either God isn't enough for me, he doesn't understand me, or he doesn't care for me. And it is this admission that I don't believe God and his promises will work to find pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope for me, and I have to find it in other sources which then led us to that third puzzle piece last week, which was the sacrifice of Jesus. This idea that he had to go to the cross because in every culture, every religion, everywhere that we've ever seen, there is always a consequence to sin. Sin would not be sin if there's no consequence. Evil would not be evil if there's no consequence to it. And God's wrath has always been poured out on the evilness of the sin, not the sinner. As we move closer to the sin, we experience the wrath of God. God's not in heaven waiting for us to mess up, throwing a lightning bolt down on us. He is pushing against the things in our life that will destroy us. And as we move closer to those, we may feel the wrath of God because he is holding it back. And this is why Jesus came. Because sin carries a consequence and requires a sacrifice. And Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice for the entirety of sin for the entirety of mankind because he was more than just a man. 
We talked about last week. He was God in the flesh who willingly came. It's not like God sacrificed his son. God came to this world in the form of a son to be a sacrifice. But he also lived a perfect life and willingly went to the cross and died. He paid the ultimate penalty of our sin. But the third thing we said about Jesus is that he did not stay dead, which brings us to this story of this resurrection and the final piece of this puzzle, which is the salvation of humanity. That this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus puts together this entire picture, this puzzle of our salvation. For Christmas, Natalie and her boyfriend, Gia, we gave, they love doing puzzles together. So we gave them this puzzle that is, did I tell you this last week? I can't, I hope I didn't. Sometimes I tell stories and I forget what I tell. But I don't think I did because it was before Christmas, so I wouldn't have told you what they were getting before Christmas. So we gave them this puzzle, this like shade of gray here down to this little darker shade of gray. I mean, it's like a 500-piece puzzle, and they, they're upstate right now with his family, and they're working on this puzzle, and there will be great joy when they finally get this puzzle put together. And what I want you to hear this morning is there should be great joy in our hearts because this puzzle that has been put together, been being put together by God for all of human history came to completion in the work and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the puzzle was done. There was not, there's no new pieces to add. The salvation of mankind, of humankind, is here. It's done. And this is what the resurrection means. There's amazing news of this resurrection, that all humanity now has a pathway to salvation. Salvation from what? From the penalty and power of sin that has separated us from the holiness and goodness of God, our creator. While the death of Jesus was amazing and an atoning sacrifice, if he had not come back from the dead and overcome the ultimate penalty of sin, which was death, then it would mean that death was still not satisfied. Something else had to be done. It still needs more sacrifice. And if God sacrificing himself is not enough to satisfy that payment, then nothing would be. But there's not only just news of this resurrection, there's an amazing nature of this resurrection. And this is it. Jesus taking on the entire sin of mankind because he had no sin of his own, faced the full consequence and penalty of that sin, which was death, And God poured out all of his wrath on that sin, and it did not consume Jesus. It didn't consume him. He came back. It did not quench his life or his spirit. After the payment was made, there was still life present. There was hope there. It is like at the end of the month when you have paid every bill, and there's still money in the checking account. It's like, all right, I took a hit this month, but there is still money there. I can make it to next month. And like December may not feel that way after what we've spent this month. But like maybe we'll catch up in January. It's that feeling of like, wow, I can go out and get something to eat tonight. Like it's a great feeling. But there is an amazing thing that, it, that I want you to see about this. It's not that Jesus was just barely enough. It's not like he just made it to the end of the month with pennies to spare. That he just squeaked out of hell and out of death and just made it back. Not that at all. Instead, Jesus returned in all of his glory. 
even more so than anyone earth had seen before. It was as if death did not even dent him or cost him. He took the full brunt of the attack. Everything was unleashed upon him. Nothing was held back, and it didn't leave a scratch. Just some nail marks in his hand. In that moment of the resurrection, death was defeated for all time, for all people, and the full power of God was on display. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes this brings up a key question that people may ask, whether you're sitting in here or you're a skeptic, and you're like, I'm not so sure, because here's the question that I would come up. That's great and all, but did Jesus really come back from the grave? Did that actually happen? For all of what I've said to impact us today, it actually had to happen. It can't just be a fairy tale or what we wished would have happened. It actually had to be a tangible moment in human history. For mankind to experience salvation, Jesus had to come back to life. And why do we grapple with determining what we should believe about this? And I want you to see a couple of things. One is this. Understanding that resurrection is not a matter of taste, preference, or opinion. You're like, ah, you know, I know some of you believe that. Maybe I don't, or I, maybe, you know, something happened. I'm not. This has to be a matter of truth. It isn't based on my belief or what I wish would or would not have happened. It actually had to happen. But here's another reason we need to grapple with it. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, can I tell you something about all of us in here? We are wasting our time this morning. We are wasting our time. Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians. He says, if Jesus did not come back from the grave, we are to be pitied among all people. We'd be wasting our time pursuing this because it would be meaningless. If he did not come back from the dead, then it it would have impact on our life. But if he did come back from the dead, then it has eternal implications for every single life, no matter if you believe it or not. For believers, we must not only be able to say he is risen to one another, but we should also be able to rationally explain why we place our faith in the seemingly irrational and supernatural event. Think about it. Why do we walk around as Christians as our core belief, believing that a man came back from the dead? If that happened in your life, and you were like, I just buried my granddad and But in three days, now he's walking around again at home. Who would believe that? People would think you're preposterous. People would think you're insane. But that is the core belief of who we are as believers. And so we have to be able to rationally explain why we believe this irrational and almost unbelievable story. For skeptics, you should be at least willing to investigate an event that even secular scholars admit something changed 2,000 years ago. Something happened. There was the birth of a new religion that swept the globe, and now, to this point, even today, one-third of all the population of the earth identify with Christianity. Something happened. So you at least should be willing to investigate that claim. And since that day, people have fallen into one of two camps. They either believe it or they didn't. And there are a few possible explanations as to what that is. And I want to hit those right quick. And the first one is this, is Jesus didn't die. Some people would say, well, Jesus didn't die. And this usually takes one of two forms. Like somebody took Jesus' place on the cross, an imposter. They look like Jesus. And Jesus wannabe. 
This would be insane. Jesus' closest friend saw him arrested. One betrayed him. Jesus' mother was standing at the foot of the cross. The religious leaders who put him to death had been with him all week in the synagogue. They knew who this man was. And who would this imposter be anyway? It wasn't one of his disciples. They're all accounted for afterwards. It's this hidden guy that's, you know, like secret service for Jesus. They have this, this double that they all of a sudden rush out. And I don't know about you, but to hear what that guy had to go through, at some point I would have said, as much as I love Jesus, I would have said, stop. It's not me. He's over there. He's hiding in that garden over there. Go get him. But we don't see that. The other thing that we hear when Jesus didn't die is what's called the swoon theory, that Jesus just passed out on the cross. He just happened to become unconscious. They thought he was dead. They took him down. They wrapped him in these grave clothes. Nobody saw that he was still breathing, and they would say, you know, wasn't good medical science at the time. They could have missed it. And then they put him in this tomb. They roll this stone in front of it. This man who has been flogged within an inch of his life, beaten within an inch of his life, wrapped up in all these grave clothes, somehow gets out of the grave clothes, have enough strength to roll the stone away from the inside, scare away the Roman legion that is there, and then present himself as risen from the dead. I actually think it takes more faith to believe that than the fact that he actually was supernatural and came back from the grave. The other, one of the other theories is, well, Jesus' tomb wasn't really empty. They went to the wrong tomb. They went to this other place that happened to be, have a stone in front of it. The guards were guarding the wrong tomb. Everybody just got their directions mixed up. What about the guy who owned the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea? You would think of anybody, he would know which tomb it was. And he didn't show up later and be like, hey guys, I know you're excited and all, but the real tomb is over here. Like, on this side, you went left, it's on the right. You took the wrong directions, and sorry to tell you, but here is Jesus' body. And so we w- that would have been discovered. And many people in that day, even according to secular historians, reported seeing Jesus. The other thing that people would say was, well, the disciples stole the body and hid it. Like they came and overcame the Roman guards, scared them off, moved the stone, and took the body. This would be an immediate change of character for the disciples who just a couple of days before went running scared like little children when Jesus was arrested. And all of a sudden now they mustered enough strength and enough unity to come back and to overthrow the Roman legion and to come and still sneak in and steal the body. They didn't even have to overthrow him. They would have had to like sneak in around them. It doesn't make sense. Maybe the ones that people say makes the most sense is this one, is the disciples were just delusional. It was all made up. Like they did not like how this story ended. And so a few months, maybe a year or so after, they made up this story of Jesus' resurrection and started perpetuating this story. These guys just made it all up, which might be believable. Let's say you discount all the other eyewitness testimonies that we have. Let's say you discount the lack of a body being produced. Let's say you discount the immediate recorded impact that this had on Rome and Jerusalem. But what really makes this such an unbelievable theory is the way the disciples held on to this lie even when it began to cost them their very lives. All 11 of the remaining disciples, except for one, except for John, were eventually killed and martyred for claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. Not one of them said, all right, you got us. You got us. We stole the body. We just made this story up. 
they all were put to death, some in horrific ways because of their ultimate belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. These men weren't delusional. They were dedicated. The final thing is this. Jesus died on the cross and actually rose from the grave. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And there are Christians and non-Christian sources that point to the resurrection. There are historical accounts of people embracing the resurrection. Even modern-day scholars that still try to debunk this truth, many of them end up becoming believers through their investigation. And I could do a whole sermon series on this, but I want to recommend some resources. If you're a skeptic and you're trying to figure out or you want a better understanding of some of the historical documentation, there's some great books. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel is a great book that talks about this. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is another one that helps us understand the theology behind this. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, another skeptic who was turned on as he began to investigate the claims of Christ. Yet, I want to be very clear this morning. I cannot prove the resurrection actually happened. I can't. I do not have definitive evidence in my hand this morning. And even though there is a plethora and a preponderance of historical data that points to something of this magnitude happening in human history, I don't have the proof. And what I can tell you is this. To believe that Jesus came back from the dead in these early days and even today takes faith. It takes faith. No doubt about it. Here's what faith is. Faith is a submission of my heart, mind, and soul to belief in something that I don't fully understand or can't comprehend. It is the willingness to suspend my unbelief to embrace an unprovable but yet knowable belief. Without the willingness to embrace faith, you will never embrace the resurrection. There, this has been the case if we are dealing with a supernatural God. This has to be the case. Someone who works outside of our understanding. If everything that God does is explainable, then he either wouldn't be God or he wouldn't exist. It takes faith. And here's what faith does in my life. A faith is an act of submission of my mind to believe that God exists. Faith is an act of submission of my heart to believe that God is good and wants good for me. Faith is an act of submission of my soul to believe that the longings and desires that I, that I have only can be fully satisfied by my restored relationship with God. It is submission of my mind, heart, and soul. Here's the question of the day as we close. It's going to come in three forms, but it's this broad thing. Would you allow this story to impact your life by embracing the restoring and redeeming power of Jesus' resurrection? Would you do this? Would you embrace by faith the picture that God is not out to condemn you? God is not out to condemn you, but to separate you from the sin that is bringing you pain, punishment, guilt, and shame into your life. He is by condemning the sin, not condemning you. Would you embrace by faith the picture that God is not out to control you, but to set you free to walk in the ways that you were originally created to be, now free from the pain and penalty of sin, and instead walking in the light of God's truth and wisdom? God's not trying to control you. He's trying to set you free. That's the good news of the resurrection. And then would you embrace by faith the picture that God is not out to conspire and to work against you, but to journey with you. That as you open up to him and share your deepest longings, hurts, and hopes, he doesn't use those 
against you, but instead takes them, redeems them, and uses them to bring you more pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope than you could ever imagine. God doesn't want to condemn, control, and he's not conspiring against you. God has come to separate you from sin, to allow you to walk in freedom, and to satisfy you like nobody else can because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because of this story, these snapshots in Mark, this beautiful picture that has been laid out in front of us of God coming as man, living a perfect life, teaching us in such a way that we can't help but be impacted by him, and then willingly sacrificing his life, and then overcoming this penalty and payment of sin in our life for you and for me. My challenge to you as we end this year, would you think on this? Would you challenge yourself to say, am I living by faith in the resurrection of Jesus? Am I allowing it? Because this is not something you can just say, oh, that's okay, I agree that it happened now. If it happened, we've got to deal with it. It's a major thing in our life, in the life of all mankind. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Father, we're so grateful for this celebration of the resurrection this morning. God, we uh, sit here 2,000 years away from this event, and it's so easy for us to just think of it as something that happened, an event that occurred in history without fully weighing the implication that it has on who you are, who Jesus was, and what it means for our life. God, would you allow us to consider these truths deeply today, to think on them, to ponder them, and to allow them to impact our heart, our soul, and our mind as we consider submitting them fully to you. May the power of your resurrection and the truth of your resurrection set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.